Discipline is freedom. I lived my whole life thinking the less responsibility and the less discipline I had, the more free I was. And that is absolutely wrong. The more that I have, you know, my schedule set, discipline around the things I'm doing, um, structure. First of all, that means I'm in control of my life. I'm choosing my life. And that makes it possible for me to have true freedom, true free time. It seems like structure is horrible. Discipline is horrible. Actually, those are the things that give you freedom. That was Sazula Badone, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast. And today, we have my good friend, Sazula Badon, joining us on the show. And Sazula has one hell of an impressive resume, including being an attorney, an entrepreneur, a yoga instructor, a certified peer recovery specialist, and the creator of her own recovery yoga meetings with a yoga curriculum designed to help individuals beat addiction and thrive in recovery. And all of this she accomplished after being federally indicted for a conspiracy drug charge, which she ended up doing 27 months in federal prison for. It was there that she began her journey of recovery and her desire to become an attorney. She has got one hell of an amazing story. You do not want to miss this episode. So let's dive into Sazula's episode. But first, a quick message from our sponsors. Are you ready to take control of your business, family, and personal life? Are you ready to get clear, get focused, and get results now? Are you ready to boost your confidence through the roof? Well, it's time to level up and add passion, fulfillment, and purpose back into your life right now. My name is Omar Pinto, and I am a certified NLP life coach specializing on enhancing your business, family, and personal life, as well as a certified peer-to-peer recovery specialist who specializes in addiction recovery. Let me show you how to create balance, harmony, and success into your life daily. Go to www.omarpinto.com and schedule a free consultation with me today. Today's episode of The Share Podcast is brought to you by The Share Recovery Community. The Share Recovery Community is our new online recovery resource that offers online recovery meetings as well as peer-to-peer recovery support and coaching that will enhance your journey in recovery. If you find it difficult to make regular meeting attendance in your area or are unable to find the recovery meetings that fit your needs, then the Share Recovery Community is the perfect place for you. And the best part is you can try out the Share Recovery Community for the introductory rate of only $1 in the first month. And after that, It's only $12 a month that once again include live online meetings, peer-to-peer support, and recovery coaching. So for more information about this amazing recovery resource, go to www.thesharepodcast.com, go to the top of the navigation bar, and click on the button that says Share Recovery Community, and join the Share Recovery Community for only $1 today. And if you'd like to contribute to the Share Podcast by putting a dollar in the virtual basket, then go to www.thesharepodcast.com, go to the top right corner of the page, and click on the button that says Donate, and drop a dollar in the basket today. 
And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's one of the best ways to show your support for the podcast. And speaking of awesome reviews, this next one is from Adidas681. The title is Love. I love this podcast. I have heard bits and pieces of my story throughout others and even learned something about myself that I hadn't realized before. I have shared this with friends who have relatives struggling with addiction. It is truly an inspiration of what we can accomplish once we get sober. Adidas681, thank you so much for this amazing review. And it is so true. Together, we can accomplish anything in recovery. Much love to you and HP, baby. And if you'd like to access another free resource as powerful or even more powerful than the Share Podcast, then join us in the Share Recovery Network. It is our free private Facebook group that is active 24-7 from people all over the world. If you're seeking recovery, then go to Facebook, go to the search bar, type in S-H-A-I-R, Recovery Network, and join this free recovery resource today. Now a quick message from Transitions Daily and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey, Zazula. Thanks for joining us. Hello there, Omar. Thanks for having me. I am super excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I'm excited to do this. <laughs> All right. I love it. I love it. All right. So, folks, today we have Suzula Badon, which I practiced like right before this episode like 30 times before I got this. I got that right, right? Yes, you did. Nailed it. Uh, she's joining us on the Share Podcast today. And Suzula it created the Recovery Yoga Meetings circula, uh, curriculum and has been teaching it since 2012. In long-term recovery herself, Suzula is also an attorney, recovery advocate, and Minnesota certified peer recovery specialist. In yoga studios and treatment centers, Recovery Yoga Meetings are helping people live and breathe recovery on the mat and in their lives. Sound about right, Suzula? That sounds right. All right. Excellent. Excellent. So right before the interview, she was explaining to me about, because I was like, where does that name come from? So please share with our listeners where the name came from. Oh, I'm happy to, happy to. So my parents were hippies and it was on a Grateful Dead album in the liner notes. I believe it was Europe 72, the album with the footprint with the rainbow, but it was spelled S-U-S-U-L-A. So they changed it to S-U-Z-U-L-A. Voila, Suzula. Uh, but here's the best part. So I, I left to go to college in New York City at 17, fresh from the woods of Wisconsin and, and the Minnesota nice of St. Paul. So I didn't know that I didn't have to talk to cab drivers or if I had something else to do, I could say, hey, you know, I'm doing something. So I'd get in any cab and they'd be like, oh, hello, what's your name? <laughs> so I got in the cab. I said, what's your name? And he said, oh. That means strong, whispering woman who imparts wisdom to those who need it. In some African language, he was African. Dude. And so I have no idea if it's true, but I'm, I'm claiming it. It's powerful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, he, and the fact that he said that, right? Like, 
you could have pulled almost anything out of your ass. You know what I mean? But that, <laughs> totally. that, that was too much. I was like, damn, we, I got to get that on recording. All right, that's, the way to, that's how we're starting this bad boy. All right. Excellent. Excellent. So those of you that are listening, right, uh, it, it certainly, that definition of her name goes right along with Suzula because she's got bigger guns than I do. For those of you watching, give us a, a quick guns shot, Suzula. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right. So be, be wary. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. All right, so before we dive into your story, please tell us what your normal daily routine looks like, including recovery. Okay, so I don't have a normal daily routine. That's that's the disclaimer. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm a lawyer. I'm a yoga teacher. I'm an advocate. So on any given day, I could be making a court appearance. I could be most days I'm teaching a yoga class, either in a studio or in a treatment center, some days, multiple classes a day. Uh, so, and then I do speaking and I also do legal education. So, uh, you know, most professions you have to do continuing education. So I do education for lawyers and judges about addiction and about recovery. So a day might look like I get up, uh, between six and seven, I do my meditation I meditate for 20 minutes. I do, there's this amazing book called The Artist's Way uh-huh. by Julia Cameron. Uh, uh-huh. And the basic premise is that you write three longhand journal or three longhand pages, pages every morning. And I could never get journaling down in my life. I, I wanted to do it so badly, but this works for me. For whatever reason, I get up first thing and I'm able to decompress the day before. So I do that. And then I read a meditation out of language of letting go, walk my dog. I have a dog, Stella, a black pug. She's uh, oh. turned 13 in April. So I walk her, get ready, get presentable, all that stuff, eat, uh, and then either teach a yoga a class at a studio or mainly at treatment centers during the week. Um, and then maybe I'll meet with a client. I do mainly expungement, so helping people get their records sealed for uh-huh. mainly okay. Uh, and then I'll do lunch. Uh, the meetings I hit the 12 step meetings are usually lunch meetings. That's a good time. And, um, afternoon again, I'll, I'm also working on a book. So I spend some time writing in the afternoon and then, uh, yeah, various other yoga law things. And then trying to think of what else. Um, What's the book? Is it a memoir? Is it uh, autobiography? What is it? So I started out writing a memoir. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, I talked with people, met with some mentors, and decided to write a book about my recovery yoga mm-hmm. that also includes vignettes from my life to kind of mm. demonstrate how I understand the spiritual principles of recovery. Mm. So it's, it's about my journey, but it also incorporates my the yoga that i've created and how that's been a really important part of my recovery because the memoir is going to take forever so (laughs) i wanted to do something that i could write you know relatively soon so you know what's funny is i was at the beach this weekend and uh we were at my buddy's beach house um and it's got to be one of the most majestic magnificent views in the world it's in uh 
It's here in Costa Rica, one of the beaches. But it's in a little cove area, a very exclusive cove. I won't say what it, the name of it just because it's exclusive and it's his. It ain't mine. But I was there, and it's not on the beach. It's above with an ocean view. So you can just kind of barely hear the, the, the waves crashing in. But the view is so breathtaking, right? And just what you can see and what you can hear puts you in a this almost meditative state. And I remember sitting there, and I was, for a while there, I was sitting there, I was there with my wife, and they were off doing something else, my, my, my friends. And I was sitting there just kind of watching things, and all of a sudden, the book of my life started. It was a trip, man. I was like, now I get how, like, artists will, like, just they need to get away someplace like this majestic that's the word that just yeah. keeps coming to my mind because all of a sudden from this from as i'm looking out i i started like so there i was as a child right and i'm just all of a sudden creating i'm like all these years where i've been like god i need to do this book but my god it's so much work and, this, and I, I go wow it just i could just start seeing it so i could see how somebody could sit down and just like bang out a book in like a month, you know, if if the insp- if the inspiration hits. So I I think I know kind of where you're at. Yeah, and, and I have a whole bunch of writings. I don't want to give away my story, but I was locked up for a period of time. So I have a whole bunch of writings from then when I tried to prepare to write a memoir at some point. Okay, okay, okay. I'm not starting from scratch. Uh, And I started to write it and it just, the thing I want to share the most with people right now is the yoga practice that I've created. So I figure I can share that first. All right. All right. Perfect. So we touched a little bit about your morning practice, okay, which is the morning pages. That's very, it's it's, it's very popular. Uh, My wife also does that in the mornings. Uh, Quite a few of my guests have, you know, raved about it. And, and how it's changed their life, the impact it has on their morning routine. My other question is about your higher power. So can you expand a little bit more on how you maintain your spiritual condition, uh, your, your relationship with that connection with your higher power? Sure. So I never believed in a higher power my whole life. Uh, I except in moments of desperation, the foxhole prayer thing, that whole deal. Uh, And my first inkling that there was a higher power was my umpteenth time in treatment, inpatient treatment, where I literally looked at the people and the objects in the room and I said, okay, I didn't make those things and I don't control those things. So obviously there's something bigger than me. Literally, that was my first crack in the door of being able to have faith in a higher power. Uh, so, you know, working the steps, living this life, being, having the world return to me, what I've given it by living in integrity with purpose, all of that, uh, has given me a tremendous faith and relationship with the higher power. I, I don't, I don't have a name for it. I don't have a, an image. It's not affiliated with any religion. I just know that there's a source of energy and a spirit that is both at the core of me and at the core of everything in the world. So it's at my deepest depths and it's everything else as well. And by living according to spiritual principles, I can work in congruence with that power. 
right? That's my job is to be honest, have integrity, do service, gratitude, all those things. And by keeping that path, that keeps me aligned with whatever my higher powers will for me is. And so the meditation, uh, yoga, obviously, uh, I also have a prayer that I, when I first got into recovery, I made a deal with higher power. I didn't believe in All right, I'm going to give this damn thing five years. Right. And if that's wow. five years, I know, well, I had serious legal consequences. So, okay. <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote and memorized basically my own version of a third step prayer. So I also say that every morning, which helps me get in touch and feel connected. I, I feel very strongly that ritual and habit are important mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of, at least for me, they help me stay connected and grounded. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but no, absolutely, it, it more than answers <laughs> the question. But what I like, you know, it's the and you gave us a nice little uh, progression on on how it evolved for you, you know, like a quick synopsis. But it kind of just starts with the whole idea of looking outside myself and going, "Wow, there's so many things I can't explain, but there, there, it's it's." It's, they're too big and they're too powerful and they're too impressive to just assume that there isn't something bigger than me at work. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of allowing yourself to surrender to that concept, right? Mm-hmm. To just kind of like, okay, there's, I can't, something's bigger than me out there, right? And then getting into action, right? right? Getting into action, being of service, uh, the, in, in gratitude, Right, just the the practice of yoga itself. Right, it's just it's it's the whole idea of, okay, I'm gonna do this thing, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna make this commitment to you to do this thing. In this particular case, I guess it's uh, the twelve step journey, you know, and then the, you know, I'll wait for the spiritual awakening to hit me. Um, mostly, most of the time, like myself, I was the one who said I'm gonna give it a year. This is the first time I said I. It's the first time I heard somebody say I'm going to give it five years, <laughs> but I know there was some prison time. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. So when we get into your story, I want to hear all about that. So please give us all that. So then, so yes, that is exactly what. That's why I asked the question. Everyone has a different interpretation. Everyone has a different timeline. Everyone has a different process, right? And so just hearing this. Um, and actually, my a little light bulb went on too in explaining it is that I'm looking at the other people in the room. I'm looking at what's happening over here, and something just dawns on me and says, "There's something greater than me at work. I can't deny it." Right? Uh, that kind of like, and it's something tangible, right? So something that our listeners can like grab onto. All right. So now uh, we're going to start moving into recovery. And right. uh, the first question is, how much clean time do you have? And is, when is your anniversary date? So I celebrated 10 years in April, April Woo. 23rd. A decade. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Now, dude, that's HP baby for me because I love that. Like I, I, I'm interviewing you on your 10 year anniversary year. That's the bomb. <laughs> so, yeah. So April 23rd of 08. Um, that's my, my clean date, and that's how long I've been in recovery. So um, just real quick, I know that uh, five years, 10 years, and I just celebrated 15 years. Congratulations. Okay, so there's those, those 5, 10, 15, you know, those, those 
big five-year milestones. I know 10 years is huge, huge for me. A lot of things, a lot of things change. Um, and this was in April, so May, June, July, August. We're talking four months later. Um, anything happened that you were like, oh, my God, this is like 10 years, of course. I wish I had the yes answer for you. Uh, I had a tragedy. My my only brother, my younger brother, died uh, last June of an overdose. Oh. And so that's colored everything that's been happening since. And so I, and in a way, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole on this necessarily. It Something inside me shut down with that loss. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, I have all the tools and resources and connections and I do what I need to do to stay spiritually connected and healthy and everything. And there's a fundamental part of my heart that's just closed for business for a little bit mm-hmm. as it sort of, um, and again, I'm very conscious of it and very in touch with the fact that that is so. And I feel like that has, has just colored everything that's happened since then. So I would like to say, yeah, man, this huge, whatever happened, but no. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, obviously it doesn't happen in every situation where you get that, 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 uh, five year benchmark moment. Um, maybe in this particular case, it's a little bit more somber and kind of just reflective. Um, but I always say that, you know, in recovery, we've been gifted the opportunity to have all the myriad of emotions and feelings that we just spent so many years stuffing away, doing drugs over, drinking over, right? Just running from our emotions, running from our feelings. Today, we don't do that. And someone who is in the yoga practice, someone that is connected to the universe, right? Connected to spirit on that level, right? You know, for me, it would be more of like, you got to ride this wave. Yeah. You got to just ride it. If it's, if you're on the wave right now, you'll learn what you need to learn, you know, but you got to ride it out. Yep. So, yeah. um, I'd say don't, don't let it take you down. Right. Right. But, but at, at the same time, Pay attention. Omens are there. Messages are there, right? There's, there is a message to be had. And if I'm feeling like I'm closed for business, right? So I've kind of shut down, then maybe I'm supposed to be using that energy that I would have been using, right? For these advancements or white light moments or whatever. Maybe I need to be using that energy for something else, right? Mm-hmm. So if this part of my heart's closed, maybe I need to focus on the part that is open, and and see you know what's the message in here anyway just sorry guys i got a little woo woo wee my bad so (laughs) and and just to add to that it's part of it for me has been accepting that that's part of the grieving process yeah just a bit of it's like i part of me has shut down to heal and grieve and so uh and so i do my best in life to not go by good, bad, right, wrong, all these, these binaries. So that it's just is, it's part of the process. And my faith is what helps me trust the process that it's not forever. It's not that kind of thing. That's how I open. Whenever I start with a new coaching client, Mm -hmm. it's the first thing I say, I say, when we start this journey and I ask you questions, it's never, 
about judgment. It's never about right or wrong or good or bad. It doesn't exist. It's truth. What I'm focusing on is your truth. What is that truth? What is? And then from there, we extrapolate whatever, whatever the root cause is, you know, whatever negative emotions are preventing us, whatever's holding you back or have you stuck. But the idea that there is no right or wrong, there is no good or bad, right, removes that, that, that tendency to feel judged, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. the minute many of us feel judged, you just immediately want to recall, you want to shut down. So you remove the judgment from it. It just, it is, it just is. Wow, I can tell where this is going, folks. We're going deep. I'm so, this is, you're brilliant. I love <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with the, the parable or the story about the Chinese farmer. Uh, the guy, there's this poor farmer, and he has one son, and they have a little plot of land. And so they have one horse, and they plow the plot with the horse, and the horse runs away. And all of the neighboring villagers come, and they're like, what are you going to do? Your horse is gone. You're not going to be able to till your land. And the farmer says, we'll see. And a few days later, the horse comes back with a, just a whole bunch of wild horses in tow, brings back a whole bunch of extra horses. And the neighbor, they're all like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing, you know, and we'll see. So training the wild horses, the son falls off, breaks his leg. You get the idea. The neighbors come. This is terrible. We'll see. We'll see. Then a neighboring uh, tribe or village invades and all of the men that are of fit body have to go fight and die. But his son, because of his broken leg, doesn't have to go fight and die. And I love that parable because it's, that's about humility because I don't know what, what's going to come of, of any given thing. I just need to be open to it. And again, if I'm living in integrity by these spiritual principles with that connection to my spirit, my higher power, I learn from everything, you know? Yes. I love that parable. I love that parable too. And it's happened in my life, right? It's happened where, you know, you have your heart set on something or you feel like you, right, I'm going to be doing this or I'm going to be doing that. And then something gets in the way, right? Tragedy strikes, you know, whatever. I mean, I don't want to go into like, I can't say that too much tragedy has happened in my life, but the idea that I got derailed and got pushed into another direction and then later on and being disappointed, right? And then all of a sudden going, whoa, that's why that happened. And also, more importantly, being able to recognize, at least in my heart, that's why that happened. Mm -hmm. That's where I feel like when you're able to recognize when you were real derailed and why and how the higher purpose for you was not to go down this road, it was to go down this road because here's where your higher purpose lies. That's when, that's kind of the game changer, yeah. right? Because then you start to really embrace the idea, the, like the art of letting go, the art of letting go. Mic drop, there you go. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, out, I'm out of control, folks. Somebody stop me. All right. So, so now going back. No, that was beautiful though. The art of letting go. It's so important and humility and perspective. And, you know, back to when I mentioned how literally my first inkling of a higher power was that there were things and people that I didn't create and I don't control. Prior to that, I literally didn't even have that, that awareness. It's like, I only saw the world 
through my eyes and how it affected me, mm-hmm. that ultimate selfishness and self-centeredness, you know? Yes. Yes. And that's the miracle. And this is a lot of times where I will be like, I'm so grateful for the 12 steps because that was my first, um, my fir- the first part of my journey that, re- that, that involved personal development and growth. That was the first place where I was actually able to kind of let go of my preconceived ideas of myself and of the world around me, take direction, right? And just follow instructions, that kind of a thing. And then from there, it was like, wow, this isn't so hard, right? Mm -hmm. And the more I do it, the better the results are. And so those were when the things changed. It looks like you froze on me. Oh, I don't see the recording thing. Oh, no, I paused it because... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because I'm over here trying to mess with my internet. You're back. It's easier to edit the audio than it is the video. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go back. All right, here we go. This is, I'm loving this. You're wonderful. <laughs> Oh, I guess you'll have to edit that too. <laughs> Hell no, that's staying in. <laughs> no way I'm taking that out. Right? <laughs> no, I think, you know, I mean, it, it is, but here's the, here's the cool thing. And I'll have this conversation with people where it's like, when you come in contact with people that are on very similar journeys, right? And we start kind of going back and forth, comparing notes, Right, it's so uplifting, right? To to realize when somebody's exactly on the same page, and we're just kind of going back and forth. Like this is the energy that I want to bring into the world. Like ideally, bringing this concept, philosophy, mindset, however you want it to, whatever words you want to attach to it, right? But the idea that a world without judgment, a world that is. A world where we live together harmoniously, right, with an exchange of ideas for the betterment of ourselves, of humanity, of our neighbors, you know, that kind of a thing is what I'd love to see. Like, I want to participate in that kind of um, humility that, that mm-hmm. I think is in many cases is, is lacking in the world uh, because you know what? To do that, you would have to relinquish a lot of control. You would have to relinquish a lot of control. And man, most of the world is not ready to relinquish the control they have, right? I embrace freedom. (laughs) (laughs) So much of that perceived control is an illusion anyway. Totally. Totally. And a lot of what we were talking about earlier is that when, when you remove that judgment, the guilt and shame, when you're no longer attached to guilt and shame, and it is what it is, yeah. right? I'm living in what is. Then when there's no right or wrong, then it's just problem, solution. Like, you know, it's, it's simple. Oh, here's the problem. Oh, what's the solution, right? And then we move in that direction, right? Yeah. Instead of questioning. There's no need to question, right? Yeah. I love it. I love it. All right, so tell us a little bit. Suzula, about the first time you drank or used drugs, and more importantly, how did they make you feel? So the first time I drank and used drugs, 
uh, you know, I, I don't remember the exact first time. I remember the general thing. I, you know, had a sip of wine here or there with that family stuff. The first time that I used anything, it was a, you know, titillating forbidden thing. I was uh, probably 12 or 13 with some girlfriends and they got a carton of cigarettes and a six pack of beer. And uh, I lived in the woods in Wisconsin at this point. We went out in the woods and we got a tent and we were smoking and drinking warm beer. And I just thought it was disgusting. (laughs) I mean, it tasted horrible. It didn't do anything for me. And there were mosquitoes. We were getting eaten alive. It was horrible. Uh, And then I continued to experiment despite that being no good. Uh, And in my humble opinion, the gateway drugs are tobacco and alcohol. So those were my gateway drugs. Uh, and I, I think it was peppermint schnapps or some absurd oh. thing. Yeah, someone could steal easily from their parents' liquor cabinet. That, that I think was the first time I got drunk. And that was the first time when I said, oh, this is, I, this is what I want. And I didn't particularly like drunk. I didn't like the feeling of being out of control. There's, you know, there's that window of feeling buzzed. But, um, but what I needed and wanted and loved and became addicted to in that moment and was earlier, I think to some extent with sugar and other things is that there was something outside of me that I could take to change the way I felt. That's what mattered. You know, peppermint schnapps. Every time I hear peppermint schnapps, like the back, whatever's left (laughs) of the hair in the back of my neck, right? Stands up. And it was never a good moment. Peppermint schnapps and 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 Jägermeister. Never, there was never a good moment, right? Uh, there was always just this vomiting, blackout, you know, just God knows what kind of things were happening in the in that moment, and it's just ridiculous, ridiculous. Yeah. But I do understand what you were talking about—that window. Yeah. Right. There is that window. That's what we go back to. That's mm-hmm. what we that's what we are trying to recreate is how do I encapsulate that feeling I have in that window? Because there's yeah. a small window of, of time where I feel everything that I've always wanted to feel love, yeah. confidence, happiness, joy, fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Right. I can ease and comfort. Right, like there's that window of time, way before the blackout and the, yeah. <laughs> and the vomiting, and the consequences and everything else. Yeah. <laughs> totally. All right, Suzula, you're ready to go. It's time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom. And finally, your journey into recovery up until today. So, Suzula, please take it away. All righty. Um, so, I was born in the woods in Wisconsin, northwest Wisconsin. Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, the child of hippie parents, first child. And so, the first five years of my life, I literally lived in the woods with my parents and rarely saw other people. Uh especially those first few years when I didn't go out. I mean, unless I was going out with my parents. And so I never got socialized really. I never, there were never kids on the block to play with or any of that kind of thing. And also living in Northwest Wisconsin uh, with hippie parents, 
we were very different from everyone else. Everyone else, or most everyone else was the other end of the spectrum. Uh, not liberal, not, not question authority and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and when I was five, my brother came along, John, and uh, I also started kindergarten. I started kindergarten early, you know, when you're on that cusp where you're about to turn five before, right when it starts, they let you start. So I started kindergarten at four and uh, it was terrifying. And I just remember, I don't ever remember feeling happy and I don't ever remember feeling comfortable in my own skin. I always remember feeling self-conscious you know, in my, when we got, when I got older and we would come down to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul and an urban area, if I was walking down the street and I made eye contact with you, a complete stranger, I made eye contact with you and you didn't smile or, you know, look at me or acknowledge me, I would be like, what did I do wrong? Yeah. I mean, I just had no boundaries and I had no, I was so immersed in that self-centered state of mind from the get-go in part because I grew up in the middle of nowhere and didn't have other people to reflect and, and be socialized. So, uh, my father drank alcohol and I could tell that he enjoyed it. So once I got to be a young teenager, I mentioned my first cigarette and beer thing, started drinking alcohol. Uh, and I also, I'm in recovery from depression. And so my depression started to really flare up when I was a young teenager and I basically said to my parents, look, I'm so depressed. If we don't move somewhere civilized to a city, I'm going to kill myself. Um, and thankfully they listened. And so we moved down to St. Paul, Minnesota before my junior year of uh, high school. And talk about totally different. I had been in a school where it was all the same people, give or take one or two people moving away. My class size was 20 kids, and which was still small for a city. Um, and a few months after we moved, my dad died of a heart attack. Um, 41 years old. What? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And so, so I'm dealing with all this upheaval of moving and I have depression and now I have this grief with my father dying. And so I was already experimenting with drugs and I, I was born an addict. I mean, I've, 40, 40 to 70% genetic brain surgeon general. Uh, and I, I know that I had those tendencies to want, even with just dancing as a little girl in the middle of the woods on our hardwood floors, I'd crank up the music and dance for hours and hours because it would give me a good feeling. And I always wanted more. So my dad dies. I've just moved down to the city and that's when I started using marijuana, um, started drinking more, had my first codependent abusive romantic relationships. Um, and I basically decided that, you know, I was, I was never little red riding hood, like, Oh, woo, woo. And then the big bad wolf with the drugs comes and is like little girl, I was looking for the wolf. You know, I believed everything Hollywood said about how glamorous and exciting drugs were. I knew I could take these things to make me feel differently. And so when I got down here, I found it. I did hallucinogens. And I also decided, you know what, I'm going to go to school, college in New York city. Not for any particular school, just because I could get the best drugs there. That was that was my plan. Um, because part of my depression was that I dying was not a particular fear for me. As long throughout my life, and especially my use, if I had died, my thought was as long as it's painless, that's fine. Mm. 
you know, as a consequence of having depression. And wow. Yep. So I moved to New York City to go to college at 17. And I found everything I was looking for. I, uh, I tried everything, did everything except for crack, never got into crack. And I found heroin. Oh. And I was, this is the moment that I should have said when you asked earlier, this, this was the moment when I thought, this is what normal people feel like. Mm. This is what it must feel like to not have depression, not have anxiety, not be miserable all the time. Because like you were saying, I just, I felt okay. Mm. You know, you couldn't, you being anyone or anything in my environment couldn't mess with me because I had this buffer, this emotional, spiritual, psychological buffer that protected me provided by the drug. So I, uh, I fell in love with a, another freshman at college. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll just pick a name. We'll call him. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to, you know, tell anyone else's story. So we'll say his name was Danny. So he and I had both pretty much started to self-destruct in high school. And, uh, we did the whole, Oh, we're using drugs and you want to self-destruct. I love you. Let's move in together. That whole thing. Um, and we were very different on the spectrum of drug use. I, in all my years, I don't know, 15, 18 years of drug use, I never once have thrown up from using a drug. And it meant, you mentioned earlier how we learned to stuff things, right? I always mention, if you've, have you seen a Simpsons movie? Yeah. Where they're in the kitchen, it's Marge and Lisa. And Lisa's like, mom or Marge, but mom, blah, blah, blah. And Marge is like, Lisa, haven't you learned? Just stuff it. That's what we do. We're women. You just stuff it. And that's what I learned from jump from birth was just stuff it, stuff your feelings. And so that was part of my drug use. If it went in, it didn't come out. But Danny, on the other hand, threw up every single time we did dope. And so he also, I had um, gotten some money when I turned 18, social security money from my father's death. So I paid for the drugs. He copped the drugs. So he got in trouble with the police, had to do a little time. And so uh, we're, I'm managing the school, you know, keeping my grades high enough and everything. He's been kicked out and had to do some community stuff. So it's right before Thanksgiving of our junior year of college. We're living in a transient hotel room in New York City. And uh, he gets caught, has to go to Rikers, uh, gets out, we get drugs, we get high, and there's a knock on the door. And it was his dad. And it Omar, it took me until probably two or three years ago when I was telling my story to realize, duh, he must have called his dad from jail. Because at the time, I was like, that's so weird. Why? <laughs> so, and it's all for good, right? So, anyway, so it's been decided that we're going to fly to where uh, his dad's home is for Thanksgiving. So, we fly there, we walk in, and my mom is there. And my mom, of oh. course, lives there in St. Paul. So, the jig is up. And uh, I get thrown into treatment here in Minnesota and I was so angry and so not ready whatsoever because just a couple years earlier, I had found one thing that had finally made me feel okay. And because of my depression, I was like, well, I'll just use this until I die. You know, that's fine. Um, and so I was the poster child for the bad, bad treatment person. You know, I fraternized, I snuck out, I, the whole nine yards. And so finally they kicked me out. It was right before Christmas of, uh, of, uh, 1995. 
my mom pulls her first tough love stint, you know, like, no, you cannot sleep on my floor. Um, so it's ice cold Minnesota. I go down to the shelter and I make my, one of these deals with, again, a higher power. I didn't believe in it's like, all right, fine. I'll be sober for three months. I'll do this halfway house time. And then the second I'm done, I'm going out to San Francisco, San Francisco, which is where Danny was. I'm going to get high. So that's what I did. I went out to San Francisco, got some drugs, shot him up, shot me up and he falls out overdose. So we're in an unfurnished apartment uh, outside of the city. We don't have a cell phone. We don't have a landline. And I'm just slapping him, trying, you know, please don't let him die. Knock on the door. It was his dad. Thank God. Because, again, his dad knows that I'm trouble at this point. So his dad comes in. They're able to get him out, get him to the hospital. And I just remember his dad being like, you will never see my son again. Yeah. Um, and you know, throughout my story, there are, and every person in recovery story, there are these crossroads, right? Where it's like, anyone who doesn't have the disease of addiction would stop and say, okay, wait a minute. Let me evaluate here. Are my choices making sense? Is my life going the way I want it to? But I, not me. So I hitchhiked into the city, shacked up with the drug dealer and overdosed myself. Um, just low tolerance, not intentionally. So I came to in the ER, brought back with good old Narcan, which we all now know about. Um, and just to give you an idea of how sick and insane I was, I said, I came in here high and I'm not leaving until I'm high. Yeah. And so the nurses, I know, I know. So the nurses came over, they were not of me. One of the nurses came over and she said, you know what, little girl, we give you people three, three chances, three strikes. We bring you back three times. And then the fourth time we're going to let you die. So get the hell out of here. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> I love her. You love her? Get your shit straight. Yeah, get your shit straight or die. But she said you people. She's like you people. I know. I know. I know. It's all, but those are just words, right? Yeah. Where's it coming from? Like what I want to know is what's the place? Is she a sadistic satanistic you know murderer i don't think so of course not i think she's had enough mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and 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 how many people die every single day from overdose i mean your boyfriend you know what i mean almost died in that in, in that apartment if it wasn't for his dad right yep. what's it gonna what's it gonna take yeah yeah well we'll have you to know. have a discussion about you are the first person ever to respond that way to that most people I'm are a, like, oh. I'm a and kind I, of, I'm a tough love kind of guy to a certain I, point. I, I do right. have, you know, it's like one time, save him. Two times, let's get him in there. Three times, you're pushing it. You're <laughs> right, pushing so it. It's, it's, this Narcan's it's, expensive. It <laughs> 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 ain't costing you any money. <laughs> what happens if we put this on your bill? <laughs> Ah! <laughs> all right, all right. Sorry, sorry. So I'm just No, no, no. It's all right. It's just, it it hits a spot for me because you know, I I couldn't stop using. It's not like I was in, you know, none of that was intentional, right? So if I was um, a drug addict, right, and understand mm-hmm. what you just said right here, I get that. Right. I do. Right. I get that. Mm-hmm. Does it change the train wreck that I left behind me? No. Right. 
All right. right. And, and when, right. you know, and if, if, if there could have been a buffer somewhere in there earlier on hindsight, mm. I would have said, yeah, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I don't, I didn't need. Yeah. Based, though. So judgment based. And again, like, it's not, not the point. I just, you know, as we're moving into this paradigm where we treat people like they have a medical condition and we treat them with respect and we don't shame them to me at that point, granted, I deserved it coming in there. I'm, you know, not leaving till I'm high. It was just more shaming and more ostracizing again. You know, it just felt, I hear you though. I hear you. I love the attitude though. That's a great story. Like I'm picturing that. That's a <laughs> great part of the, a great part of the movie. You know, <laughs> I am not leaving <laughs> till you load me up. I'm not leaving until I'm high. I don't wait for something to go on. Right? <laughs> Insane. That's, that was me. Um, so I, uh, I, again, I couldn't stop using, so I was still using heroin and I, uh, my mom helped me get an apartment and I got on methadone and I was actually on methadone for four years. Um, and I feel very strong. This might be going off course. We can come back to it later. I feel very strongly about medication assisted treatment being an option that's valid for some people and that the shaming that goes on around that is, is killing people. Um, you know, if I could have been abstinent, I would have, that was the whole point. Right. And so when I was on methadone, I was able to stop using, I was able to get my life together and I was eventually able to go back to New York and finish college on methadone. So for me, it saved my life. And, um, I actually did get back together with Danny we went back to New York, graduated from college. Uh, we ended up breaking up and I got off the methadone and decided I wasn't done. But I didn't want to deal with opiates anymore because of the withdrawal and the maintenance and all that. Oh. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, it was never about a particular drug. It was just that I had something outside of me I could take to make me feel differently. And so heroin was my first drug of choice. But when I decided I'm not dealing with all the withdrawals and all that stuff, um, I went the other way. I went Coke and mainly meth. So this was 2000 or this was, yeah, 2000. Um, So I started doing Coke and meth, living in New York. um, And uh, eventually in 2003, I believe it was, maybe it was 2002, I got attacked on the street. Uh, It was just a random attack. I was very lucky I didn't get seriously injured. Just some guy just threw me down, beat me up. Um, and that was enough to make me call my mom back here in Minnesota. I'm coming home. I'm going to try and be sober. So I came back here (laughs) again. I think it was 2002, 2003. And I really did. I gave it my all for five months. I went to meetings. I, you know, I take antidepressants for my depression. I had a therapist, got a sponsor, the whole nine yards. And I just wasn't done. So I went out to a nightclub, did a little bit of meth, and uh, that's when I was off to the races and started my meth-dealing empire. So what I mean by that is that, in my experience, people who are addicted to drugs often sell drugs to some yeah. extent to other yeah. people because that helps them support their own habit. Yeah. So I, that's what I was doing. I was selling drugs to support my own habit. And uh, I had a friend in New York City who... Uh, went by the name Budokan. Uh, and I had 
uh, used with him in New York City. And uh, he called me and and we were still in contact and he found out I was using and dealing. And he said, oh, will you send me a little? Send me some drugs. And I'm like, honor among thieves. I'm sure it's fine. You know, so I would thought I was all cute. I would sew it into a teddy bear and send him little amounts for free and all that. And did that a few times. And then he calls me and he says, I need two and a half reams of paper. So some red flag bulb went off because we had never used that as a code word. Uh, but again, I'm like, I'm sure it's fine. Honor among thieves. So I sent him two and a half ounces and it was a setup. Oh. Uh, so this is 2005. Uh, and he and I were both indicted federally uh, for conspiracy to possess, possess with intent to distribute meth. So that's a 10 year mandatory minimum sentence. Um, so, you know, I mentioned these crossroads, right? Anyone who doesn't have the disease of addiction facing 10 years in prison would, I imagine, probably say, you know, maybe I should stop using, especially since I'm being drug tested every few days and everything. Not me. I continue to use. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a federal law called the safety valve where if it's your first offense and there's no guns, no violence, and you're going to plead guilty, you basically do an interview with the DEA. You admit what you did, and then that gets you out of the mandatory minimum. So that brought my sentencing guidelines down to 70 to 87 months in prison. Still no, you know, trip to the park. Um, so I went for my sentencing in New York. And again, by the grace of a higher power, I didn't believe in then, uh, had probably the most liberal and wise judge when it comes to addiction on the federal bench, um, Judge Robert Sweet. He, he understands that addiction is a disease, that we're not evil, we're sick. And so he gave me a downward departure. Uh, he gave me a year in federal prison camp, Orange is the New Black, and five years of supervised release. So I, uh, I go to do my, my time, and uh, you know the, I have to surrender to the marshals. They throw me in the local Sherburne County Jail here, which is the federal hold. Um, I... Tell surrender. I go to the uh, Sherman County Jail, and it takes about three months for them to send me to my facility, which was uh, Federal Prison Camp Peak in Illinois. And I had made all these meticulous efforts to make sure that I had documentation of my depression, so that they would have my medications for me. So I get to the facility. I go to pill line, and they say, "Oh, we don't have any meds for you." Uh, so I send a kite to talk to the psychiatrist. I don't remember how long it was, probably weeks. I saw the psychologist and I said, look, I know there's tons of diversion of drugs and all that, but you have my records. I have depression. It's real. And she said, well, we don't have your meds on our formulary. And so this is going to be a good year for you to get a baseline on your mental health. And so I said, um, this is serious, you know? And uh, she said, well, I can Xerox some breathing exercises for you. So I spent the rest of that year in federal prison camp, totally suicidally depressed. Um, I gained 50 pounds. Um, and the only reason I didn't kill myself is because of the shame that my mom would feel when on page like a 29 of some newspaper, it was like, you know, college graduate kills herself in prison. Um, and the, the thing that's so sad about that to me is I didn't even think about her pain or her sadness or any of my family's sadness. It was just the shame. And it, it's just such an insight for me because my life was ruled by shame and addiction. 
So uh, I get out. I'm 50 pounds overweight. I'm suicidally depressed. Any guesses? I relapsed. Um, <laughs> so I'm on. Uh, <laughs> so I'm on supervised release. So I'm being drug tested. And uh, long story short, they figured out that I was using. And so my uh, supervised release officer said, you know, I'm sending you back to prison for as long as I possibly can. And uh, we made a deal that I was going to be able to go to the federal halfway house instead of prison, but there wasn't a bed available. So I, she couldn't lock me up right away. And that's when I went just straight off the chain. I called someone I knew who did heroin. I hadn't done heroin since 90 or 95, 96. Um, and this person had a baby, had a five-month-old baby. And she had had the baby because she thought, oh, this will help me stop, right? No. So we go and we go to this just shithole. You know, there's um, needles and it was just a horrible place. She leaves me with the five-month-old to go cop, the heroin. And I remember saying, I'm standing there and I'm just like, what? Who am I? What am I doing? I... And there were periods or events along the way that were happening more and more frequently where I just didn't have the power of denial anymore. I didn't have the power of rationalization early in recovery or I'm sorry, early in addiction. I, I was, you know, nothing was bad. I was completely capable of fooling myself and everyone else. But as I'm standing there about to probably go back to prison in a week or whatever with this five month old baby in this crack den waiting for someone, I just, I was like, who just soul crushing, at, you know, self-awareness of who the hell am I? So, um, we, we, she got the dope. We went to use and she said, you know, you haven't used it in a long time. What if you die? And I've said, Oh, that would be wonderful. Just let, leave me, just close the door and let me die. And I said to her, I said, well, what about you? And she kind of looked at the baby she kind of like was frustrated. And she looked back and she's like, well, I guess you better call points to the baby. And again, I'm just, I'm sitting there and there's no amount of denial that I, I can, I just, every value that I believe in is completely out the window. So I turn myself into the federal halfway house. They catch me trying to fake my urine test. And so I get thrown in SAG, or, um, solitary confinement, and I kicked dope, which I'd only been using for a few days and meth um, for like seven days. They revoke my release. They send me back to Sherburne County Jail, which is the federal hold where I first went when I had to do my first year. And that's when I had my spiritual awakening. That's when I had my, um, the shift, the whatever you want to call it. Because the first time that I hit Sherburne County Jail, I was still in active addiction in my mind. And so I was like, you know what? This is an experience. I'm going to write a memoir, like, you know totally rash. You know, it wasn't my fault. I got set up that whole thing. And you know, the victim and all that. And when I hit that Sherman County the second time, I, as I said, I had no denial left and it hit me. It's like, this is my life. This, I don't have anybody to blame, but me, and it's not going to change. This is a pattern. You know, i this is the second time I've been here. And that's when I had that, um, awakening that I talked to you about earlier where I said, okay, fine. Five years, I will give it my all, and you know, wrote my own third step prayer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I had a wonderful federal public defender uh, who was able to get me to go to treatment, 
before they did my revocation hearing to see if they'd send me back. And so I went to treatment uh, in May, April and May of 08. And that's, you know, I've been in recovery ever since. Um, so I go for my revocation hearing, which they had postponed so I could go to treatment. And uh, the judge says, you know what? You didn't learn your lesson and I'm going to teach it to you. And he sent me back to a federal maximum security facility prison for 18 months for relapsing. And I had my second awakening at that point because I understand why should anyone believe me? I've been fooling the system the whole time. I've never wanted to actually be in recovery before. Why should they believe me? And yet when he pronounced that sentence, and I realized I was going to a max facility for 18 months for having the disease of addiction. The, uh, something else in me broke and it just, you know, not on my planet. No, it's not acceptable. So that's when I decided that I was going to be a lawyer. So I go to prison and this is not orange is the new black. This is real prison. Um, and I, uh, uh, you know, stay in my cell for the most part. I'm studying for the law school admission test that um, you have to take. So I get out, um, I think it was August 20th of 09, and the first call I made was to the uh, Minnesota State uh, Bar, the Board of Law Examiners in the bar. And I said, here's the deal. You know, I'm a federal felon. I'm in recovery from addiction. Can I be a lawyer? And they said, yep, you're just going to have to prove your rehabilitation. So I hit the ground running. I got a sponsor. You know, I did the 12th. I mean, I had this huge, I was going to show that judge. I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to change drug policy. I'm going to change the world. Um, and so, because that's the thing about people with the disease of addiction, once we're in recovery, we can do anything. That's we true. Any amount that's true. of that yes. energy that we use to self-destruct and to chase drugs and everything, any amount of that to recovery and pursuing something meaningful, particularly if it serves other people, the sky's the limit. I mean, my life is proof. So I, it takes me a good three months to find a job working at a bagel shop, making bagel sandwiches for $7 an hour, I believe. I love bagel sandwiches. And <laughs> I know, I know. And so, um, you know, I'm doing the deal, working the steps. Um, so I went to about at least three meetings a week for the first three years and saved my life. And a big part of it, I didn't realize it until later, but a big part of it is that I had never learned to socialize. You know, I mentioned that as a child, but furthermore, yep. as a teenager and an adult, I never had so did anything social without drugs. I never had sex without drugs. I never, you know, I never, I was never a human being without drugs. And so one of the things meetings gave me that I didn't realize at the time was it was like a social laboratory. It was like a place for me to figure out who I was and how to have relationships with other people. And then also, of course, all the amazing work that happens when you, or things that happen when you work the steps. Um, so yeah, just quickly. So step one, powerless and unmanageable. I think we got that covered. Um, in federal prison, locked down 23 hours a day. Um, when I first, when I first got sent there, so they, they fly you to Oklahoma, which is the transfer station when you come from your local jail, and then they flip you to your facility. So they flipped me right away. And so they lost my paperwork. How does that happen in 2007, 2008? But that meant I went straight to the SHU, the solitary housing unit at the new 
facility. So I was the only one in an orange jumpsuit with the black box between my handcuffs, you know, and it was the best thing that could happen because when I got off that bus full of, I don't know, 60, 30, 60, there were two buses, I think. I was the one that was escorted first by two guards with what looked like machine guns to me, you know, through the yard down to the shoe. And so all the people that were already there watching were just like, what did she do? You know, and it gave me a rep. Like it, it was, it saved my life in a way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, powerless, unmanageable. I think so. Um, I can't stop using in the face of prison time, et cetera, et cetera. Step two came to believe power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I have no idea what sanity is. <laughs> and, um, and someone in a meeting said, you know what, just substitute the word reality for the word sanity. Mm. And that makes so much sense to me because, um, you know, when I was in New York in the early days, like going to clubs and stuff in my own mind, I had paparazzi, you know, like I was like a club kid. And vivid. I mean, I was just completely living in a world of my own imagination. And so being restored to reality made so much sense to me. And the other piece of that is, you know, coming to believe in a higher power. I didn't have to believe. I didn't have to know what the higher power was or anything. That step just means that I'm going to do the rest of the steps. And that process is going to give me the experience that's going to help me come to believe. So step three, made a decision, turn our will and our lives over. I struggled with this one because I did the mental masturbation thing. Like, well, how can I turn my will over and still make choices? And people, I think, were so frustrated with me. This guy was just like, just means do the rest of the steps. Um, okay. So step four, searching and fearless moral inventory. Uh, when I work with sponsees, one of the things that I say is, you know, if you were doing an inventory in a store, you wouldn't pull up a desk and a whole bunch of machinery and stuff and say, okay, this can of peas was printed on this date or canned on, you know, and it's got a little dent in the corner. You just say there's three cans of peas. There's three cans of corn, right? Because I know from my experience that I got started to get bogged down in things when I was making my, my list, mm -hmm. you know, the minutia. Exactly. And so one of the biggest things for me and when I help when I help people, it's just, it's just an inventory. Believe me, fifth step, we're going to go there. But for right now, it's just a list. And, um, and the other thing too, is that crucial part of owning your part in it. Um, I did a fourth step workshop. I was a participant and there was a man who had been molested by a priest. And he said, you know what? I had no part in this. I refuse to take any ownership of any part in this. And, uh, and he was angry. And the facilitator said, you know, your part in it is that you're still holding on to it. That's the only thing you got left, you know, that's your part in it. And so we always have a part in it. There's always something that we can do or, you know, so that's the, that's the key part for me of when we get to step five, working through step four. So step five admitted to God ourselves, another human being. Um, I was so ready and committed to doing it. And at the same time, I thought for sure this woman is going to kick me out of her house. She's going to call the police. I'm going to, you know, I mean, I, I was terrified and, and I was committed. And so I shared everything. I didn't hold back. And without fail, she would say, you know, I did that too. Or, you know, I did that, you know, naked on a beach with three guys, you know, or whatever. And <laughs> what it did for me is that it removed the story. I learned the fifth step taught me that so much of what I was carrying, the baggage and the shame was the story that I had told mm -hmm. myself. Man, I love it. You know, 
third grade and someone is like, mm. oh, you're ugly. And I had taken that to heart and and it had become this thing of I'm unworthy of love, you know? Mm-hmm. And so by looking at all these things and sharing them with another person, and like you were talking about earlier, not good, not bad, just seeing them for what they really mm-hmm. are and owning my part, whatever it is, I was able to release all of the story. Um, and it, w- it was profound um, to have that experience of, I, you know, I was very careful not to have expectations. Expectations are uh, resentments waiting to happen, right? Um, and so I was like, I'm not going to expect to feel all light and everything. And yet I did because I was able to see things for what they really were and not that story I had told myself. Um, so step six, get ready to have God remove these defects of character. As you may have noticed, I'm a little cerebral, kind of live up here a bit. <laughs> and so, um, so for me, you know, I had the experience of working with a sponsor who's like, well, we just, you know, read and you hit your knees and pray and we're on to step eight. Um, and that didn't work so well for me or I, I, I do it differently. So when I work with someone, what we do is we debrief the fifth step and we just talk about, okay, what were your patterns? What were your coping mechanisms? What, what, you know, character defects or traits did you have or use to get by to survive identify those and then are well are those still working for you oh no they're not shocking well what do you want to replace them with and then by doing that i feel again it's just me i feel that that's the necessary work before i can do step seven because i'm co-creating my life with my higher power right that was my problem with step three like how do i turn my will over and still make choices this is a project co-creating project and i have to do my work and so for me with step six once i've identified what those things were and what i want to change them with and how they were affecting me and why i want to do it differently that's when i can go to my higher power and say all right i know what my part i figured it out and now here you go (laughs) you know hook it up take it away (laughs) um so yeah step seven humbly ask god to remove our shortcomings that um Again, there's the big piece of that for me is having done that work for myself with step six, because that way I feel like I can go. If I'm just saying, well, okay, these are the things I think I need you to take. It's like, I can go and say, these things that I've done are not working. So please take them. Mm. Um, So step eight, you know, get ready and willing to make amends. I've heard that there are sponsors who will say, you can have three lists, right? You can have your, I'll do it today. I'll get willing to do it. And I may never be willing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't do that. I just say we make a list and we get willing. Um, <laughs> it's about humility, you know? It's like, who are you to decide if you're ever going to make an amends? You need to just identify it and get willing. Fair enough. So step nine, um, made amends. Um, so this one, I think the biggest example was before... <laughs> Before I got locked up, I racked up all these parking tickets. And so, you know, you have the parking ticket and then you have the late fee and then you have the collection fee. And so I had probably two grand at least in parking tickets that I was looking to have to pay down. So I'm sitting in federal max security prison and I'm regularly stressing. I'm like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to pay off these tickets? Am I going to get a license? Am I going to be able to drive? You know, what am I going to do? So I get out, I work the steps, it gets to the point I've got my $7 an hour job with Brugger's or bagel shop rather. Um, and uh, my sponsor says, okay, it's time for you to make this amend. So I call up the, whoever it was I had to call the DMV. 
and they had all been forgiven. I mean, I even had like stub numbers and stuff. All of the parking tickets had been forgiven. And yeah, so higher power, first of all, right? My mom had sent them a letter saying she's in prison. You're not getting your money. Leave me alone. Um, What that taught me and what all of my step nine amends taught me are that I don't have to worry about those things right now. I, if I do the work of being in integrity and being right here and living my principles right here, right now, those things will be taken care of like that. And that was when I started to realize step two of coming to believe it's like by working these steps and these principles, I'm seeing that the world is treating me a different way. And and I'm having faith that things will work out and that I don't have to fix, manage and control everything five years before I get there. Um, Step 10, you know, continue to take personal inventory. I would be lying if I was like, yeah, every day I sit down. I'm pretty sure all of us would. For me, what step 10 is, it's just earn my shit as soon as possible. Earn my shit as soon as possible. You know, I if I make a mistake, if I get put in a corner and tell a little lie or, you know, anything I do, the soonest that I'm able to address it and write it, that's step 10 for me. Um, and my experience with it is that, and also the internal part of staying in, you know, if I'm feeling out of spiritual connection or if I'm feeling some sort of tension in a relationship or something, having the integrity to make that inventory of my internal state and see if there's something I need to do. Um, in my experience, people are just so grateful that someone's taking responsibility for their stuff. I know thing. I know they did it. And I'm like, so did you do this? And they're like, Oh no, I didn't do it. It's like, just admit it. And then we can get past it. You know, I don't. (laughs) And, um, and one of the ways that I think about step 10 is so imagine you're having this dinner party, right? You have all these friends over and you make this beautiful meal. And then after the meal, you have all these dishes, right? So you have two options. You can just throw them in the sink and then go have more fun, or you can do the dishes and put them away. And that's what step 10 is for me because I do my dishes right away because they have to be done. And the longer I wait, the harder it's going to be because they're going to be caked on, nasty, whatever. Um, Step 11, um, improving conscious contact with your higher power. For me, the first three years, that was meetings mainly. Um, going and connecting with other people, which had always been so difficult for me without drugs and being open and willing to listen and hearing things through them that I believe were things I needed to hear um, from my higher power. Uh, And then now yoga is a huge part of it, uh, is the way that I, not only the practice, my personal practice, but by doing the service of sharing the practice with others, that's what really helps me stay connected um, to that universal spirit, that higher power. Um, and then step 12 service, I, I speak, I share my story. Uh, another big part of step 12 for me is gratitude. Um, there's an amazing woman, uh, Nikki Myers, who does a, a yoga practice called Y12 SR. And, uh, she always talks about how a grateful addict won't use. And it's so true because when I lose sight of gratitude, uh, that's when I start to get self-centered and all of that stuff. Um, and so it's about service and gratitude for me with step 12. The issue is in the <laughs> tissues. Yes. The issue. That's another one of her. Yep. 
We carry our issues in our tissues. She's episode 24. What's that? She's episode 24. Oh, sweet. Awesome. I'll have to go, uh, let's go back. She's one of my first, she was one of my first uh, yoga guests. <laughs> oh, sweet. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, she's an amazing woman. She is her. amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so then, now I get to tell you all the wonderful, amazing recovery whipped cream and cherries and all that stuff. Bring right? it on. Bring it on. We all like the toppings. So I, uh, so I get out of prison. I hit the ground running with the steps. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I take suggestions. I do service. I'm honest, open-minded, and willing. And I take the law school test. I do well. Thank you, federal government, for 15 months of studying time. Um, 15 months of the 18 with good time is what I served. And I do well on the test. And I apply to law school and they're all like, um, hell no, you just got out of prison. <laughs> You're uh, still on supervised release. So I met with the admissions instructors of the schools locally here. And they all said, yeah, you know, you can get in. We can probably even give you some scholarship money. You just need to prove yourself that you're actually in recovery and be off paper, off supervised release. So I reapplied, got in. That was 2011. Um, and I got a 50% merit scholarship. So 50% of my tuition was covered. Nice. I'm a federal fellow, right? How does that happen? Uh, HP, baby. And, mm -hmm. Promises. Um, so I, you know, the first time when I went to New York to go to college, it was like college was the way for me to get to New York to do drugs, right? Law school, complete opposite. I loved every minute of it. I, it was, oh, I just loved using my brain. And also, you know, I've got the long-term goal of changing the world and drug policy. And I also knew that I was going to have to pass the character and fitness portion of the bar exam. So I'm, making sure to have connections with powerful people that they know me and, and everything so they can attest to my character. So I graduated magna cum laude, top third of my class. Um, I, uh, I was one of six students out of a class of, I think, 238 to be nominated by the uh, faculty and administration for the Student of Merit Award, which is given to someone of impeccable character. Um, so, yeah, I, again, how does this even happen, right? Um, and I, the woman who won is amazing, and I'm convinced that I had a handicap because the winner got to speak at graduation, and I think they were a little afraid of what my speech might contain. <laughs> so, um, but it's an honor to be nominated, right? Um, so, uh, so I graduated from law school, I take the bar exam, I pass, and uh, I get a letter from the Board of Law Examiners saying, Congratulations, you passed the bar exam. You're not going to be a lawyer anytime soon. We're investigating your past. And I had been an open book. I knew this was coming. I shared everything with them openly. Same with law schools. I've, I've been an open book the whole time. So they put me through truly re-traumatizing hell. Um, I had to do a CD, you know, psych or chemical dependency evaluation with their provider that they set up to ask the questions for what they wanted to know and your analysis. And, you know, I've, I've got seven and a half years in recovery at this point. So finally they give me a license. This was May of 2015. Was it March, March or May? Um, so I, uh, I actually argued at the court of appeals the day after I was sworn in, I was already working at the law firm. Um, 
I did criminal defense for about a year and a half. Then I ran a nonprofit, um, Minnesota Recovery Connection. It's a recovery community organization. And then since then, I've been, uh, I have my solo firm, my solo practice. Like I said, I do expungements and then also the yoga. And so that took off, started in 2012. I created the practice for my own recovery. I, uh, I put together a sequence of postures where we work the 12 steps physically in an hour. So I, uh, knowing and understanding that the 12 steps are, are a barrier for some people, I've removed it from the dogma. And so it's not a meeting. We don't read the steps. We do start with a little check-in. And then what we do is I say the spiritual principles for each step. So step one, surrender and acceptance. And then we do a yoga pose or sometimes a little sequence that embodies those principles. And so it's the experience of working the spiritual principles of recovery with your body, with a group of peers. So um, I've been teaching that, created a training curriculum. I train other teachers. I teach in healthcare and treatment centers. Um, and... Yeah, so I'm a lawyer, I'm a yoga teacher, I created curriculum, I'm writing a book, I, um, and I was sure I was going to die with a needle in my arm. And furthermore, that was fine as long as it was painless. And, uh, and I can honestly say that I have an amazing life of joy and um, something I just never knew was possible. So that's my story. Joy, gratitude, and grace. Amen. Yes. You know, um, there. When did you get your actual license to practice law? So that was, I believe, it was March of 2015. I graduated in 14, and then they put me through hell for six months. So. So you've been practicing law for three years. I mean, this, this, is, this is the story, right? This is the story. And without struggle, there is no story. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to go to a... Nobody goes to watch a Hollywood blockbuster movie where somebody is born with a silver spoon in their mouth, gets carried along their whole life, lives an amazing life, gets married, has kids, and now keeps it going. Boring, right? Right. And, and, and so... So, and, so go ahead. Oh, and that doesn't happen. Right? right. And and the story, the book isn't as impactful. The story isn't as impactful if I'm not doing hard prison time, if I am not contemplating suicide, if I am not on the brink of death, if not if I'm if I can't visualize you in this drug den with a baby, you know, asking ourselves and looking at yourself like here's where I could see, here's where I could see it. Pan to the left. Broken <laughs> Broken, broken mirror, uh, and uh, left, and I'm going to my right. It's pan to the right, you know. Broken mirror on the wall, right? Pieces, right? I'm holding this baby, and I'm looking at myself in the mirror, all sucked in, you know, just going, "Who is this person? Who are you? Like, where? I, I'm in this moment right now. How did I get here?" Yeah. You know, and then and then to to graduate magna cum laude, to get your law degree, and wait, we're gonna put you through some hell for the next year first. <laughs> but it just adds to this whole delivery, where 
if someone is saying to themselves, it's too hard, I can't do it, you know, woe is me, because there is a whole lot of people that just love throwing the pity party, right? Mm -hmm. And how many people can I invite? Because the more, the merrier, right? Misery loves company. So if we can all sit around in a room complaining about how miserable our lives is, so we have an excuse to do drugs and kill ourselves, then, you know, more power to me. And, and this is not that case, right? Um, this is not the case at all. So I think that, you know, when, when, you're, when you ask yourself, you know, I, it's so hard to fathom everything that I've gone through. And then you realize that this is part of my story. This is part of what needed to happen because I help people every single day. I inspire people every single day. Right, and when I tell them what I've been through, and they look at me from the cross table, like they most of the time they do, they're like, "Really? No, really, a baby? <laughs> That's a powerful moment, man. I've got a few of those in my back pocket whenever I got to deliver, you know, and hold, <laughs> holding a holding a baby in a crack den is the one I'm gonna." I'll, I'll, you know, I'm going to come back to that, waiting for my friend while she's copping dope and her yep. contemplating her own life in that moment. Yep. I mean, so, so, so there you have it. Um, the steps, here's, I, I love the simplicity, right? Boiling it down to certain areas. This is one, this is one, the fourth step, right? Where the guy was abused and molested. Okay, because I've been asked that question too before. And when I've had to work through that area where you just can't find the part in it, they were abused, molested, raped, whatever the case may be, right? Um, My reframe of that is unrealistic expectations. We have unrealistic expectations, right? of our parents for example we blame them for all the shit that they did to us or whatever the case may be or you blame the, your aggressor or whatever and it's like, like it's an unrealistic expectation that we're all humans it's you know it's it's humanity in and of itself and we have no idea what happened to that person i love what one of the one of my favorite parts of ken's interview was him talking about how many people he hurt but you know, made it very clear that hurt people hurt people, right? And so there was that there was that 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 moment where you realize that as much as as painful as this is, and, what, and there's no excuse for it, there's no justification. I'm not trying to do that, and I'm not trying to defend the other person, right? But you know, these hurt people hurt people. It's an unrealistic expectation to believe that everybody in the world is safe. That everybody else is the worst, you know. And how did I end up in this situation? How did this happen? That kind of. The, but this, you're still holding on to it. I love it. <laughs> I love it because I've been I've been working with that other framework mm-hmm. of the unrealistic expectation of others and just the basic structure and I guess fundamental belief system about humanity, right? Mm-hmm. That that it's imperfect. And, you know, hurt people, hurt people, that kind of a thing. But this, man, you're still holding on to this. And there is, I'm holding on to the story. So for those of you listening, this is, this is huge. 
what is the what is the story that I'm holding on to? Because that's all it is. It's not happening in my life right now. It's not present. It's not physically affecting me, right? What is it about that story? Why am I holding on to the story? And there are there are secondary benefits to holding on to the story. Mm-hmm. If I am if I have this story that I can hold on to, I can turn to it whenever I need something to leverage to make an excuse about, right? To get some sort of pity, to get some sort of reward from this story, right? Why am I still holding on to it? And that's, that's huge. That's huge. That letting go of it, right, allows you to change your behavior, yep. right? And, and there was another, which was the whole idea of the sixth step as well. The sixth step where we do the debrief. And it's recognizing the patterns, the coping mechanisms. This is all behavior, right? And we've developed these coping mechanisms to protect ourselves. Great. Okay. The art of letting go. At some point, when you have that faith in a higher power, that there are ways of coping with life and people and situations differently than we used to, guess what? The consequences are very different as well. New consequences based on new behaviors. We can't think our way into better acting. We have to act our way into better thinking, right? And so the basic premise of of this work and the simplicity behind it is is beautiful. So I love it. Thank you so much. You killed it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there. I mean, I. I've been in recovery for 15 years, and there is even the even down here where you talk about removing the dogma, mm-hmm. right? That is also a big part of the resistance that we get. That's a lot of the resistance that that, that happens for people coming into 12 steps. Is that it has also moved into a dogmatic a dogmatic practice, and yeah. so there is going to be resistance to it. You know, when 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 uh, when you're allowed. Right to take what you need and leave the rest the way it's kind of described sometimes, it's a lot easier to swallow, right? Because I can pick and choose. But when it's attached to structure, you know, a much more rigidity, right? That's where I see a lot of the pushback. That's where I see that that's where 80% check out. Yeah. You know, they, they don't, they don't, they don't make it. So this is like, there's a lot, Suzula. There's a lot here. There's a lot. Your story is is like amazing, and I think yeah, I think that the book coming out is, and I understand now why there's so many. Like I start and I stop, and I've got this part and I've got that part, right? Because you know the the happy ending is 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 amazing. Um, of all of these things, of being an attorney, becoming an attorney. Right, the yoga practice, developing your own modality for using yoga and rec- combining the yoga and the, and the twelve steps, right? becoming an attorney, right? This, this, these huge changes that have happened in your life. Which one of these things would you say has been the most impactful for you? The yoga. 
the getting the law degree and getting that piece of paper that means that I'm okay in the eyes of the legal world. And, uh, you know, when I was a student, I was a certified student attorney and I was helping women coming out of prison with their legal problems. And the warden told me, oh, you can't come in here because of my past, right? Well, now that I'm an attorney, I get to go into the prison to see my clients, you know? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I'm back at square one at least, right? And so that's all rewarding and wonderful and, and, and doesn't even come close to the yoga piece. To have created something that translates recovery into a physical practice and then to share that with people and have people that have never gone to a 12-step meeting, never gone to a uh, yoga class because they're too intimidated, they have issues to come and start to, it's like I'm the gateway to both of those things, to yoga and to 12 steps because it's, it's, I make it so accessible and so non-judgmental and so safe that people can come and just experience both of those things, yoga, the principles of recovery on their own terms, and then feel more comfortable going out after the, the more dogmatic programs or the more sophisticated yoga or 12-step programs. Um, and just, you know, as Nikki says, and you said, we store our issues in our tissues. So much of this is, I mean, we neglect the physical component of recovery. It, in all the treatments I went to, it was like, well, you should get a gym membership or, you know, learn to run. And it's like, even if I had the discipline to do that or the desire to do that, it's so much more profound when you integrate it with recovery, because then it's like, I bring it full circle and bring it into my body. And so creating that, and I, I don't even take credit. I was full on higher power, just giving me the practice I needed for my own recovery. Um, and then literally paying rent to teach for a year, you know, not even having enough students to break even, and then just watching it grow and spread word of mouth and then being asked to do a teacher trip, you know, and just the sheer obviously inspired and spirituality and connection from my higher, higher power piece of it. It's like, I didn't law school. I did right. I decided to go to law school. I did this stuff. My higher power does everything with me. And you know, that was my will choice, right? I didn't choose any of this yoga stuff. It just, you know, it was presented to me and it keeps growing and and I see it helping people. And so that is rewarding, by far the most rewarding. I kind of figured you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say, I got to tell you one little story. So, you know, I mentioned I do legal education, right? So I, when I talk to lawyers, I have various presentations, sometimes the neurobiology of addiction, sometimes stigma, sometimes I just share my story. And so when I do that, uh, I, I did it probably a year ago at this courthouse. It was judges and prosecutors. So I'm not preaching to the choir, the defense bar, right? It's the other side. So I walk in, I've got my suit on, I'm impeccably dressed. They know I'm a lawyer. And I always say, you know, just judge me, figure out who you think I am, what I have to offer uh, before I share my presentation. And then I share, you know, what I told you, the whole story. Uh, and then at the end, I always say, okay, now think back to who you thought I was. I'm still that same person. You just know my past. And at that event, I had a judge, an older woman judge come up to me crying afterwards. And she said to me, you know, I had a woman come in on a, a probation violation, a PV this morning for using, and I sent her back to jail. And I wish I had heard your story first, because I don't think I'd do that now. And I was just like, mission accomplished. 
And so, you know, there's just recovery is rewarding in all aspects, as long as I'm serving people and using my experience to help others. Corny as that sounds, it's totally true. No, but there is, you know, this is, I've done over 180 episodes, right? And there's so many, yeah, it's 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 quite a few. (laughs) And the similarity. Thank you for what you do. You're amazing and I love you. We need you and I'm so grateful. Okay, go ahead. We need you too. (laughs) We need you too. Um, (laughs) The similarities are always so uncanny. So I've done all these episodes, right? And there's so many similarities. Every single episode has so many different similarities. The stories are all very different, okay? The stories are all very different. But as we start to connect with recovery, as we start to connect with the higher power, as you even discuss it, right, and how we kind of delicately unpack the recovery and the concept of the higher power and the things that we've done in our lives and the things that we're most grateful for, it's, a, it's an emotional state. It's, that's what we're the most grateful for. And this is what, what, this is what transcends and it's, it's a constant, right? I am grateful. I live in gratitude, right? I have peace in my life today. I don't have to remember my lies. Yeah, oh, amen to that. <laughs> so there is this ability to be honest, open-minded, right? To, to be able to embrace new information, without judgment, right? And take that information and use what we need, leave the rest. And there's, so there's this kind of like, as we go along, the story's different, then you get into recovery. And it's like, yeah, it's, there's a lot of similarities there. And again, it's this, the art of letting go. All the shit that got me here doesn't serve me. There's this new stuff here that's presented to me and there's countless numbers of people before me who've just kind of like let go. And they said, okay, just tell me what I got to do, man. Just, just tell me what I got to do and I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I just, I got nothing left. Right, right. And then boom, immediately that's when the, the light bulbs just start happening. As soon as you let go, spiritual awakening, spiritual awakening, spiritual awakening, whatever you want to call it, expect a miracle, right? And, and know that no matter what, no matter what, even someone who has been, how many years did you spend in there total? In prison, seven years? Uh, no, it was only 30 months total. Because remember, it was, I, I got the downward depression. It was 30 months total. Supposed to be 10 years. I got out of that by a federal law. And then I got the original judge who gave me a year. And then the second judge who gave me 18 months. Okay, okay. So how, 30 so how, 30 months. Okay. Yeah. In prison with a record. All right, a felon becomes an attorney, starts her own practice, is a completely different person. Past stays the same, past doesn't change. Wreckage doesn't change, wreckage still happened. I let go of the story, it doesn't hold me. Right, It it doesn't hold me back. Now, the present, being in this moment, being present, what can I do today for a better tomorrow? What can I do today in hopes to be of service to others, right? And I'm no longer holding on to that, oh, my God, you know, I did this and I did that and woe was me and the pity party, right? So you had all of this, and I don't know, I said had, but I'm not sure. 
right? Well, we're talking about the depression, mm-hmm. right? Early onset depression, thoughts of suicide, self-medication. Where's that depression now? So I take antidepressants. Okay. I see a therapist. Uh, one thing that was incredibly helpful for me uh, when I got out of prison was EMDR therapy. Yes. It's talked about uh, all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I had so much trauma from childhood and then also the trauma from, you know, being in a max facility. Um, and I, I was in talk therapy my whole life, uh, doing drugs the whole time and lying about it. Uh, and so when I, you know, when I was in rec- in recovery and doing this EMDR therapy, uh, it, ju- it, I would say the EMDR 12 steps, medication for depression, um, and yoga are the cornerstones of my recovery and have just changed my life and really restored me to who I truly am. So that is co- completely managed now. Yes, I, I did. I had, I struggled when I lost my brother, uh, because not once I feel very blessed to, I don't have any obsession or cravings. Um, I haven't since I had that spiritual awakening, um, 10 years ago in jail. Uh, and I don't, even when my brother died or even when horrible things have happened, using is never an option. Uh, so, um, suicide is, and that might sound really strange, but that when I get in a spot like that, I think, well, if it gets so bad, I can kill myself. And of course I have the safeguards and the tools in place that I would, you know, never let that happen. And, but I did, I have struggled somewhat with depression since my brother died, but it's, it's managed. I have, you know, medication. I see a therapist. Um, but you know, just to be fully honest, yeah, I have struggled some with that. Well, and, and two, we have this awareness. I have, I have right. self-awareness. I can feel my damn feelings yeah. now, Omar. Yeah, absolutely. Ah. And when it comes, and when it comes, I can do something about it. Right. Yep. I yep. got a strong circle of influence, people that I can yep. reach out to. I know what to do. Yep. It's not like this hopeless state of, of, of isolation where exactly. I don't know what else to do. I don't know who to turn to, and this seems like the most appealing solution, right? right? Where now it's like, oh, that's coming up. Huh. Let me make a few phone calls, right? All right, so we're going to start close. Reach out. Yes, reach out. Okay, so we're going to start closing up. But before okay. we do, tell our listeners what's the best way for them to find you, reach out to you, um, your website, social media, that kind of thing. So the best way is my yoga website, which is recoveryyogameetings.com. And that's also on Facebook. It's uh, R-Y-M-T-G-S. And then um, you can email me, Suzula, my first name, um, at recoveryyogameetings.com. Okay. I will have that listed on the show notes. So go to to Suzula's show notes and i'll have that all listed there okay so we're gonna i'm gonna ask you five questions about your early recovery that you can answer for our newcomers are you ready i am ready number one what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery unfortunately for me i only became willing to change when it was more painful to stay the same than it was to change or when the pain of staying the same 
outweighed the fear of change. And that happened for me when I hit jail that second time, when it was like, holy shit, this is a pattern. This is my life. And I, I had no more power of denial. And so for me, it was, I, I wish I had some more, you know, this is the thing. And here you go. That's your answer. Uh, for me, I, I continue, I'd always been able to use my mind and my talking, you know, I was able to nip, manipulate situations and control the world. And I just got to the point where that wasn't happening anymore. <laughs> it was whipping my ass. <laughs> and uh, that's when I was like, okay, I white flag, I surrender. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I yeah. Think that's, you know, this is a whole nother podcast episode. That's just such a shame because we can't keep, you know, criminalizing addiction, right? Mm. I mean, we can't keep having the negative consequences be the impetus for recovery. And yet that's part of what helped me. I can't deny. So. Yes. Yes. It is. It's a tough one. I mean, we could go, I mean, I, I've been clean for 15 years. I've been doing the podcast for over three years, three and a half years. Um, My mindset, my belief system um, about different facets of recovery, uh, medical assisted recovery, you know, all of it, you know what I mean? Like it, it has all evolved and changed over time. It's very different, uh, today than it was when I first got in or a year in or five years in or whatever, you know, there's this level of open-mindedness that starts to happen, you know, right. um, you know, when we start talking about topics like, uh, what is it? Naltrexone and Suboxone or is, you know, these sort of, blockers and ways of managing your alcohol use. And, you know, I can get on my soapbox all day long about all that kind of stuff. But what I've done is what I've decided to do is let all that go. Right. Like I don't have enough information myself about it. And the reason why I don't have enough information about it is because I really don't seek out the information. It's not part of, it's not part of my program. So I stay out of it. You know what I mean? Like this is a, I've just chosen to allow the countless number of pathways that are available now to us, right? There's so many different pathways. We've discovered, discussed quite a few even in this episode. So it's the idea of just letting go. There's people that are, like for yourself, you're advocating, you know, for decriminalizing addiction and, you know, just kind of creating awareness to... to other possibilities this seems like the harshest yet it's the one that is is the is the dominant sort of like solution and so it's just i guess it's more of just hey let's just stay open-minded right if i if i don't have the if i don't have enough information right then it's like i'm gonna stay out of it right and 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 i and i find that my life's a lot easier when you feel something about something that you're passionate about. Like, this is what I'm passionate about. This direction I want to go. And it's like, how can I support you? Right? Like, how can I support you in, in, you know, in, in your movement, you know, to the best of my abilities up to a certain point, that kind of a thing. Um, and again, with the whole idea of removing the judgment, it's not about right. It's not about wrong. It's about where we're at and how I can help you. Like, where are you at now? Where would you like to go? How can I help you? That kind of that kind of thing, right? So, so yes, I, I, it is. It could be a whole different, uh, very extended podcast uh, 
uh, episode because there would be a lot of political views and legal issues and you know controversy and that kind of a thing, right? And I, and 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 I get all that. So since I stay out of it. <laughs> Uh, I'm like, let's just let's share your story. <laughs> and but it's fun, man. Like this is it. Like what we do and what you do, life becomes so fulfilling because it doesn't matter which way the the the, the conversation turns. We all want the same thing. We all want to advocate for recovery. We all yeah. want to help as many people as we possibly can. And we all want, and we want to bring our story, our message out there as vulnerable and as expressive as possible because there's so many facets of it where somebody's going to go, oh my God, if she can do it, I can do yeah. it. If he can do it, I can do it. I did that too. That happened to me, right? And I can relate. And that relatability brings them along. So, so, man, we we have done we have certainly done some tangent writing here, haven't we? <laughs> We're in the moment. We're in the moment. I went off such a tangent. I'm like, where did I leave off? <laughs> okay, question number two. <laughs> okay, moving along. Moving along. Jeez, I, I should have got. I should have made more coffee. All right, so at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery, when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? Well, I guess you stressed in recovery, so I guess my moment in prison or in jail doesn't perhaps count. It could. Um, well, I think, I think it was when I when – I, was able to go to treatment because they could have said, no, you're not going to treatment. We're sending you back to prison. And so when, when some higher power that I had just opened the door crack to think might exist, allowed me to go to treatment with the help of my federal public defender, that was, again, I don't know if that answers the question you asked, but that was another piece of, I'm not in control of things are happening that are moving me in that direction. And so maybe I can recover. Maybe it's possible. Uh, I still got to maintain that it was that, that spiritual awakening though. And I wasn't yet in a recovery program working anything. And I had been, you know, sober and drug fee for seven days, hit that jail and was like, this is my life. This is a pattern. If, if recovery is going to happen, I'm going to have to do it. And I can't keep blaming the world for what's going on. Well, that's the, that's certainly the, the beginnings right at the, at the precipice of your recovery journey. So I would yes. say, having that white light experience, so to speak, or that, 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 yeah, that spiritual awakening in that moment, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost like Bill in the, in the hospital, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know what I mean? Like the, the light shining through the window and him having that awakening. I, I would say that, that that qualifies, right? Like that's yep. the thing that impresses upon you. That's the turning point in your yep. life, right? Where yep. you knew the jig is up. Yep, exactly. I had no denial left. And the only thing I could hope for and choose was recovery. All right. So do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to our newcomers that you read in early recovery? Oh, I've been thinking about this one. Um, I really like The Four Agreements uh -huh. by 
I forget the guy's name. Don Miguel. Uh, Don Miguel uh, Ruiz, I think. Yeah, it's Ruiz. Don Miguel Ruiz. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is I really love – I think it's so important to laugh. Yes. So important. And so while I was locked up and to this day I continue to read writers like David Sedaris, Augustine Burroughs. Uh, I love memoirs by people in recovery because I it's humor and it helps me laugh. Mm-hmm. And so uh, – and so memoirs are great. I love memoirs. But if I had to choose one right now, I would say the four agreements. I'm sure there are many others I would think of. Which one's your favorite memoir? I like dry, but well, actually, no, I think my favorite is The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls. Mm. The movie, in my humble opinion, sucked. Read the book. The book is much better. Much better. <laughs> The book has a ton of humor in it. The book has a ton of humor in it. So sometimes it just can't quite capture the essence of the book in the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I got you. I got you. All right. So number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Best suggestion I have ever received is reach out. The whole of my life was about isolation, not being social. And so And to do the things, especially in early recovery, that intuitively feel like, oh, I don't want to do that. That's probably what you need to do. Uh, Those things, I don't want to go to a meeting. Yep, go to a meeting. I don't want to call my son. You know, reaching out and continuing to connect. And as you were saying, we don't think our way into a new way of acting. We act our way into a new way of thinking. So continuing to reach out and connect. A lot of early recovery is basically embracing the idea that I have to do a bunch of things I don't want to do. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And that's kind of like the, the key there. If I don't want to do it, that's the thing you need to do. All right. Number five, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? Well, I kind of already gave the one with connect, reach out and discipline is freedom. I lived my whole life thinking the less responsibility and the less discipline I had, the more free I was. And that is absolutely wrong. The more that I have, you know, my schedule set discipline around the things I'm doing um, structure. First of all, that means I'm in control of my life. I'm choosing my life. And that makes it possible for me to have true freedom, true free time. It seems like structure is horrible. Discipline is horrible. Actually, those are the things that give you freedom. I, could not live my life without discipline, structure, and routine. Yep. I got to know. I know what's coming. For some things, I'm two months ahead in yep. my Google calendar. Right? Yep. And it, it just allows that freedom of I'm not worried mm-hmm. about whether or not I can pencil you in. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, hey, what are you doing on this day? Let's find out. Yep. <laughs> and it's just, let's find, hold on one second. Let, yep. Let's find out. That's freedom. Discipline, structure, routine. It just, and peace, freedom, serenity, all of that comes with it. I love it. Wow. Suzula. We went two hours, baby. Wow. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just glad I got it on recording. <laughs> Black 
blackmail me with that forever. <laughs> oh man, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much, Omar. I again, I'm so grateful for you and what you do, and just for the opportunity to share my story. Well, it was spectacular, magnificent, and all that kind of good stuff. Right, our listeners, there's lots of gold in here. Right, so you might have to go back and listen to this one again, and and make sure to pen and paper next time. Lots of good notes in there. All right, so folks, we've now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us, and as we say here in Costa Rica, pura vida. Pura vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview, or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.